Good afternoon. First talk after lunch. Let's see how this goes. I see it. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're just so compelled to look deeper into what you've given us as scientific research just confirms continuously over and over again what you've told us. We're grateful, Father. We have a perspective that's heavenly and we do do not want to become complacent, but we want to use your blessing as we search out how we ought to serve you in this world. We ask for your blessing and uh, for attention for the gift of communication that um, I know, Lord, your Holy Spirit is the best communicator. We do ask for your presence here as we discuss this topic. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pain management, people, you know, you got the both spectrums. Um, you hear to the pill mills before, you know, and just stacks of prescriptions. One, one, um, one clinic just closed down locally in the Seattle area, or I guess a couple hours away, where he, the gentleman had like about eight, nine clinics, and um, I forget how many deaths, 20, 30 deaths in the clinic, and just multiple prescribers, and never seeing the patient, the repeat notes, and whatever else. And you got the pill mills. Um, on the other side, you have this reputation of just the needle jockeys, needle jockeys, you know, the ones that want to just inject everyone in sight, you know, chase you down with the needle, you know, this is going to fix you. I, I want to admit, I am an interventional pain specialist, and I will tell you right off the bat, I have never once cured someone with a needle. I just want to admit it. I just humbly admit it, and it's a challenging topic, it's a t- challenging um, field, but I love it for very specific reasons. I, I, there probably is one exception how I've healed someone with a needle, and that's an epidural blood patch. After I've punctured a hole in their spine, then you patch it with blood. And that seems to work pretty well. But everything else, I'll tell patients, I can't heal you. I need your help. I can give some relief for a duration of time, but it's almost meaningless unless you're motivated to make some changes in your life. And it's absolutely true. Researchers continue to support that. Just for clarification's sake, um, if you had looked at the objectives, objective number three, I kind of dropped from my objectives because I, I'm not going to be able to cover it in any meaningful um, expansive way. And so, um, forgive me, I will show some slides talking about different modalities and their role in pain management. Specifically, we're going to talk about back pain, but not covering enough where I feel that it's a covered objective. And so the first two objectives about curbing the opioid epidemic and then the five-minute back pain consult is what we're going to cover today. And again, with time permitting, we will cover some modalities that um, I'm sure all of you have either participated in or told your patients about or your uncle tried this and it worked, you know. Invariably, when I finish these talks, and I give you a lot of these talks, invariably, someone will approach me, and you guys are health professionals or related to some degree health professional fields. I'll have someone ask me, oh, I have, have you tried this? And have you rubbed this on? And have you um, put this on your face before? And stuff like that. I probably haven't. And I, I don't know much about it. it whatever you're talking about, it, I just probably haven't tried it. There are a few I'll mention today. I have the same Google access that you do for some of these therapies, and I'll try to cover in some, in a glancing way, how I approach those therapies, so to speak. But as, as a rule, when you look up, for instance, everyone, you've probably met somebody who got back pain and looked up online natural pain remedies, you know? And I just want to give a little bit of word of advice, though. After you read about 30, 40, 50, 60 of those sites, they actually copy each other. <laughs> And they copy each other's resources, too. And you've got to understand that in terms of, oh, let's try this claw or that claw or this you know, um, herb or that herb. I basically have a, 
uh, you might judge me for this, but I basically have a Tylenol rule. You know, if it's safer than Tylenol and works as good or better, it probably has some reasonable use to it. If it doesn't, use it at your own risk, so to speak. But we'll cover some of those in a minute. But again, I just want to honestly tell you out there, I don't mind questions about them. I just have as much information as you do about a lot of these things. There are some exceptions, though. So I, I love this passage. It's from the Health Reformer, <clears throat> July 1st. Um, 1868. All references you can email me about at kimjo54 at yahoo.com. I didn't put it up to, not to cl clutter the slides, though. I love this passage, and I took excerpts from it. She was actually talking to invalid women who were having pain. Invalids should have outdoor exercise. A part of the prescription for every such patient should be light physical labor, pleasant employment out of doors. Let this class of sufferers, I know it's very small, so I'll try to read clearly, let this class of sufferers have pleasant employment out of doors, suited to their several conditions, both in nature work and the time they should be engaged in it. In other words, patient-specific. And studies are showing that um, individualized care, obviously, are getting more advanced results. Many that are very feeble can walk if they only think so. I love that passage because we're learning today that just physical modalities aren't working as well as mental modalities combined. We're learning all that, even in primary care fields, you, you know that, and you've heard a lot of this, and we're going to talk about some of them today. So you even said it over 100 years ago. Many that are feeble can walk if they only think so. So get a suitable exercise program, and we need to change the way people think, is what she's basically trying to say. I love this passage. They have not the disposition, and you will hear them plead, oh, I cannot walk. Have you heard this? Oh, I cannot walk. It puts me out of breath. I have pain in my side, pain in my back. Try to exercise moderately at first. Have rules to govern you. Uh, this is supposed to be in quotations. Walk. Yes, walk. If you possibly can walk, try it short distance at first. You think that walking is impossible. You will no doubt become weary. Your side may ache. Your back, your back may give you pain, but this should not frighten you. I think Ellen White would have been an excellent pain manager physician, I'll be honest with you. Walk, just walk, you can think it and do it, you know. Listen, you get someone past that episode, and most people, I'll be honest with you, nothing works as well as something. In studies show us, you know, and I'll get to some more detail later. You get past that acute episode, but they keep coming back. And studies are showing whether you inject them, fuse them, manipulate them, pinch them, bruise them, whatever else, rub something on them, that physical modalities are changing their behaviors as part of the equation, and more and more, we have to change the way they think in order to overcome chronic issues. The acute pain, the people that are motivated, they're going to get better, or most do. The beginning of my talk is on opioids, and you know, I spend so much time in the office, I have a 30-minute visit, to spend 20 minutes of that time talking about opioids, painkillers, and I, I, I end it with the patient, listen, we spent so much time on this, you're gonna think that this is the only thing we have to offer, and we spend so much time on it because it's such a complicated issue. How much, when to start, when to stop, you know? And I always tell the patient, listen, if we're going to start this, um, and we'll get into more detail how we start, you understand, this is not the most important thing we're talking about today. We just spent a lot of time talking about it because it's so complicated and challenging in regards to treatment. So new thoughts and new behaviors. I do recognize that probably most here, probably statistically, don't have chronic opioid patients. Or if they do, that's not the major part of their practice. But please keep in mind this is that with the epidemic that we have in this country, if you have any kind of clinic at all that sees patients, you have patients that are on chronic opioid therapy. You do. And if you do, then even if you don't write them, if your response is, I can't write your opioids, I guarantee you, a chronic pain patient will find a solution. 
they, they'll go somewhere to find somewhere to get their pain under control. And some you cannot save. I do recognize that. But we're missing a vast part of the population by just saying, I don't eat opioids. Go to the doctor down, down the street. I think he does. And so your patient may be on opioids, I mean, and you don't write them, and you're guilt-free, aren't you? But keep, it, keep in mind, if they drink alcohol, they smoke tobacco, if they are obese, if, uh, with respiratory problems, <clears throat> excuse me, if they're on benzodiazepines, TCAs, you've got to, if they're elderly, their renal and hepatic function, dysfunction, you've got to recognize they're still your patient. We don't parcel patients in half in quarters, you know? Go to that doctor, he gives lots of meds, you'll be real happy with him, you know? At least a working knowledge is going to be helpful in curbing this issue of the opiate epidemic. President Obama made a statement about this in last, last summer in the spring. The CDC made a statement, which I have some strong reservations about, but it's a, it's a step. They're trying to stop opioid-related deaths. If you don't, I, next couple slides I want to talk about. How many of your friends with back pain, how many of you know someone who has started yoga or mindfulness for their back pain? Maybe if you start talking to your friends, I suppose 90% of hands will go up. You'd be, oh, you do? You do yoga, hot yoga, stuff like that? Um, I won't have time to get into details about yoga or mindfulness. Um, I just found out a, pay, a, a healthcare provider we work with very closely in our clinic. She's teaching our patients mindfulness. And I've been talking about clinicians like, hey, let's talk about this. What are we using? And what indication are we using this for? But real quickly, yoga, Hindu, Buddhism, Jainism background, maybe 500 BC. Um, ultimate goal is freedom, about having self-realization and self-knowledge. There's actually strong evidence about short-term and moderate evidence about long-term back control, control of back pain with yoga. This is from the British Journal of Medicine, British Journal of Sports Medicine, excuse me. Mindfulness. It's a meditative quality where you're sort of, um, how do you put it? Come to a self-realization of uh, where you're at and the surroundings and your feelings and thoughts and in a non-judgmental way, be aware of them, you know, and to control pain. And studies have shown that meditation involves endogenous opioid pathways. The introducer to the more modern mindfulness is John Kabat-Zinn in the 70s. And even though most practitioners will say, well, mindfulness is, has been, has been um, de-religionized, we don't really teach the the Eastern medicine part of it. How do you really do that when you have all the forms of what, you know, the Eastern religion, if you think about it? How do you just, it's like having someone go to church, let's pray, let's give offering, let's give session music, let's hear a sermon, but let's de-religionize Adventism, you know, let's just do all the forms. I, I have a hard time differentiating, and I'll be honest with you, people will seek out after treatment if you don't provide treatment. I'm not saying we can save all, because chronic pain is a, it's a Pandora's box and you've opened it. You've had that one patient, right? that took up your whole afternoon while you're still trying to see other patients and they keep giving phone calls and messages and nurses say, I'm so sorry, Dr. Kim, I just have one more question. They're back in the front desk and screaming and yelling, you know? You've had that patient. And it's just a challenging, challenging field. And I can see why it'd be so easy. I can't write this stuff. You know, it's just too complicated. It's too much of a um, burden and risk. And I hear a lot of patients come into my office saying, my primary care can't write opioids because they said they can be arrested or lose their license or whatever. I can't blame them. I'll be honest with you for them hearing that because it's, it's so much scrutiny. So. Looking at Ellen White's statements about morphine in general, majority of statements will say, and this is not all the drug statements, but morphine in general, again, if you want references, just you can email me, have to do with, you know, we don't want to do these habit-forming things that create appetite for more disbasement and falling further and further and further. She also tends to mention several times that drug use in general, it'll cause us to avoid to the gain to the root of the problem. That's what I want to talk about today, actually getting to hopefully some roots of the problem, if we have a chance and we talk today. 
is that opioid management, her concerns, one of the concerns she had was it avoids getting to the root of what's causing the patient's pain and digging deeper. I do use alternative therapies. Um, Personally, I've never recommended yoga or mindfulness to a patient of mine, but I do use what I feel are alternative methods of therapy. Um, but in the end, I, as a clinician, you want, I'm really trying to think, what's getting to the bottom of this in terms of what the cause of this patient's pain is? Sometimes it can be challenging and sometimes nearly impossible. Okay, statistically speaking. So 20% of visits of non-cancer pain um, <clears throat> receive opioids. In other words, one out of five patients that come into your office, they don't have cancer, I have pain. Hopefully not your office are getting pain prescriptions, prescriptions as they walk out. That's 259 million scripts written in 2012. I think that number is still going up. That's enough for one prescription for every American adult a year. And the National Health Interviews um, Society, 11.2% of adults have daily pain. So we're losing the battle in terms of more and more people being disabled and having pain, and all the same token, all this scrutiny saying stop using the opioids. And what's the primary care provider supposed to do? Get yelled at, you know, or fear of losing their license. So the data we have. So for less than 12 weeks of pain, the data is actually pretty good. Um, and uh, if you've, I never gave birth to my baby, babies before, but my wife's in there. I told the doctor, give the epidural, you know, just, just give it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, why, I didn't, it's a personal choice of yours and a lot of people go through natural birth or whatever, but there are situations in which probably opiate analgesia is superior than just um, biting a stick or whatever else, you know, and you'd have to choose for yourself when those occasions occur. But good data about improved function in the short term. Chronic therapy, we really don't have very good data. Uh, we know that. We don't have good data. Three to four percent of the American population is on chronic opioid therapy or have been recently on chronic opioid therapy. Now think about this for a second. Three to four percent of the American population, American adult population. So we're talking about roughly 10 million people, right? Let's say nine out of 10 people of those are just seekers, uh, abusers, or sellers, or whatever else. Let's say even if you really uh, have this mindset, like, you know, these guys are just trying to get drugs off of me, you know? 10 million. Let's say nine out of 10 are in your office for the wrong purposes. That's still about a million patients that have genuine pain concerns, and if they found a better option, I'm talking one out of 10 here, that found better options, they're willing to buy it. What entity, what church has better resources than cheap? people to think differently and to act differently than our Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have it. That's, let's say there's a million. That's about as many people that have been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in the United States. 1.3 million, I think, is the last statistic I saw. And so that's a large population of people that you can jump on. They're open. They're ready for change. They're ready to have decisions that are going to be life-changing. What appealed me, and again, most of you are just going to put your hands in the air and think, oh, I can't believe I just had this kind of afternoon. It's going to be frustrating and almost pound you to the ground in terms of discouraging. But there's a large population that are ready to change. That's what kind of got me into the field, so to speak. There's a little bit, 30 seconds if you allow me. Um, I was doing one of my rotations as a trainee, and there was this attending, I work at Columbia University, and he was one of the world-renowned endocrine surgeons, thyroid surgeon. He invented you know, minimal invasive thyroidectomy, and he got melanoma, and he was going to die. And he happened to be on my rotation that I was taking care of him. And you know, this rolled around surgeon, brash, and wouldn't talk to medical students and whatnot, when he's facing life and death and chronic pain, they talk to you as a person. It's just the common denominator. They know that their lives are ending. They talk to you as a person. I had another cancer patient, could, rectal cancer could not roll on, onto his backside because of the pain. I said, will you let me do something? I'm gonna burn something. You're not gonna be able to walk afterwards or walk right. And he said, I don't care. I'm not gonna live more a few months. 
So I took some alcohol, I took some local anesthetic to measure how much alcohol I'd use and put some local anesthetic in there. I mean, as a test, and then I put alcohol. I mean, this is pretty aggressive stuff, you know, but, you know, burned the nerves, basically, sacrally. And he rolled onto his backside, like, ah, the relief. And I said, well, at this point, meet Kyle, because I come in the room with our Bible worker. <laughs> Who's Kyle? He's going to give you your next section of your study. I mean, your next section of your treatment. He's our Bible worker locally. Oh, sure, great. I have nothing else to do right now anyway, you know? He took on his Bible study. He's on to his death. And those, uh, you know, those, those admittedly are few and far between. They're not every single patient that wants to make changes in their lives. But these are patients that either do desperate things, and the bad things are desperate things, and the right things. Okay, so ODs are the leading causes of accidental death in the U.S. in 2014, 19,000 for prescriptions, 10,000 heroin. Um, I'm going to skip this rest of the slide just for the sake of time. So what we know, there are no study to prove benefit greater than a year to the functional pain scores in regards to chronic opioid management. You ought to know this. You can actually say this with confidence looking a patient in the eye, saying, listen, there's no studies beyond a year about this improving your quality of life. Risks do increase with dose, that's obvious. It seems like 20 milligrams-ish, morphine equivalents-ish, 50 milligrams-ish, seems like when the risks start to take on that, um, how do you put it, what's that word I'm looking for, that uh, exponential type of rate, you know, 20, 50, and 100, you know, when you get to those thresholds. When I get to 50, I kind of call on my personal timeout, say, hey, what are we doing here, you know? Um, should we take, a, take this off? Screening tools are difficult to use. We have an ORT, SOAP, R, uh, Brief, brief risk inventory. We just don't know how to use them. Studies are very weak in regards to, here's your soap test, let me see it. Let me, oh, you're high risk or low risk. They just haven't shown great correlation with treatment. There have been good, actually, there have been good studies, and again, just not to clutter up the screen, in regards to successful therapy, to different degrees, exercise therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, as opposed to mindfulness, what is the difference between cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness? Does anyone know? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> That's a very good summary. I summarize it. It's counter-behavioral. It's change of thoughts to create a change in your activities, you know. It's truth-based, so to speak. Oh, this lady didn't meet me for lunch. She must hate me. You know, change your thoughts about what you think about that and change your attitude in terms of how you respond to it. It's truth-based. What's the truth about this instead of imagining everything? Mindfulness is, again, that self-meditation, what's in your heart, what do you feel. Non-opioid pharmacology, um, we'll get into some studies about that, shown to be effective, and interventional therapy, that's my field. So we do have actually high-quality evidence about um, hip and knee osteoarthritis that exercise therapy actually helps. I'm going to, may not have time to illustrate a study later, so I'll just talk to you about it now, since I, I start a few minutes later. I'm going to probably skip it later. They had this study in... Um, <clears throat> Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise. Never heard of that journal before I saw this article. So basically, they had a very small study, 24 patients, and they've had a lot of studies about people who exercise for acute pain and get better relief, but they didn't really have any good, and they had studies about chronic pain for athletes, but they didn't really have exercise for non-athletes, and that's what they got. Non-athletes, 25 individuals, 24 individuals, a very small study, where basically for six weeks, they would um, exercise at 70% of their VMAX, which is their maximum exercise ability, and three times a week, and they brought them back. And so basically, how they did the study was in two ways. One is they did the pressure monitors where they, they felt the pain as they were pressurizing their arm. And another way, they were holding on to um, some kind of um, pressure caliper or some kind of pressure monitor as well, and they had a sphygmometer around their arm, and they kind of inflated it to 200. 
And the person would hold it as long as it couldn't have to, to, have to release. And this is for chronic pain, people will exercise. And it's a kind of unique study. It came out in 2014. Again, um, they probably need to do more research. But what I found interesting was this. They didn't find any difference in terms of exercise, I mean, the pain threshold. In other words, both groups are feeling the pain at the same times, but they found a higher level of pain tolerance with those that exercised. And so basically, they put up with the pain better if they were getting their bodies more fit, so to speak. And these are people who didn't exercise. So what I tell patients, you see this man pushing a rock up and down a hill. If they have acute pain, I basically am going to say, I'm going to inject you. Um, it's not going to cure you. And I'll be honest with you, if you're walking and doing everything else, you'll probably get better anyway, most likely, looking at your MRI or looking at your physical exam. Most patients say that for acute pain. For the chronic pain patients, I do actually tell them this. I say, listen, I'm going to do an injection. I may need to do one, two, three. There's no magic number by three, by the way, of epidurals. But for instance, I might end up doing one, two, or three injections. You'll be the same exact person in three to six months. I said, if we're, if we're lucky and fortunate, you've had pain for 10 years, if I can give you a three to six month window where you're having a little bit more pain relief, you have to get to work. You need to lose some weight. You need to start exercising. Or else you'll be in the same exact boat except you had more steroids in your body. Do you agree to this? You know? And I actually put it in those terms because under no notion should they be coming in thinking, oh, my neurosurgeon came me, sent me here to get some epidurals to fix this back pain. I always tell them the same thing. said, this won't fix you. You have a lot of work to do. Are you ready to get to work? Now, of course, we have the palliative care patients that are another group. Now, in terms of opioids, we have no information about, I mean, no good studies about low back pain, headaches, and fibromyalgia. Anyone have a fibromyalgia patient in their clinic? That's a Bless your hearts. You know, we, it's, it's a tough and challenging disease to treat and manage. Um, I'm always calling colleagues and talking, discussing care. But anyway, that's about that rock, pushing that rock. Get, I'll get you going, but you have to kind of get it on the way, on the other side there. Okay, this is my own mnemonic, so to speak. Um, so they come in asking for medications. It doesn't always have the medications. In Western medicine, there are basically five methods there's much more, obviously, but major methods that are covered by insurances, reasonably well accessible. You know, that's what I mean by five methods of pain management. Psychotherapy, rehab, injections, surgery, medications. When they come and ask for your medications, always go through your list. Okay, have they gone through assessments, psychological assessment? Are they candidates for CBT, biofeedback, whatever else? Have they gone through rehab? What kind of injections would be possible? Are they surgical candidates? And, of course, have a discussion with medications. And so mentally, always, 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 it's easy to go straight to the M, but you have several right prior to when they ask for meds, okay, this patient needs medications. Please keep in mind, again, there's many, many, many more medications, but which are easily accessible, covered by insurances and whatever else, anti-inflammatories, antidepressants, membrane stabilizers, muscle relaxants, opiates. Now, it's true, anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxants, I kind of say for shorter-term treatments, long-term treatments aren't very good, studies are, aren't very good for long-term usage. Uh, antidepressant, membrane stabilizers, the other end of the spectrum, you, the people need to recognize, they need to be in this for the long term and explain that to them. Um, I want to spend plenty of time for the back pain concept. I, I know some of you are here for just for that, and opioids might put you to sleep, but this is what we're met with in regards to what's expected of us, and so I'll try to be brisk and hit the highlights. So you need to be able to tell them. The light, um, it more likely harm you if you're on higher doses, if you're currently on benzodiazepines, sleep disorders, hepatic renal failure, if you're elderly, if you're pregnant, obviously mental health issues, or history of substance abuse. Most recommendations by state boards say if they have a history of substance abuse, they need to be screened prior to initiating chronic opioid therapy. If they already are on it, the recommendation is that you get assessment as soon as possible by a mental health provider if locally available.
In other words, it is okay and legitimate to say, listen, you have a history of suicide. Was, I know it was five years ago, but it was on opioids. Um, I need you to do the screen prior to. You stand on every good ground, I'll be honest. You, you might get a really upset patient, but you do stand on good ground. So this is the key. Set a goal. Review it frequently if you're on opioids. Don't just say, how's the pain? A six. Okay, here's your meds. We'll see you next, next month. You know, set a precise goal. How much are you walking? Are you keeping your job? Are you losing weight? You know, do you start, set a goal about their lives. And even when they achieve it, always tell them, this is always on a trial, trial basis. Never let this, the thought come into mind, this is permanent. And tell them, this is the way we're going to just continue when we accomplish that goal or if we fail that goal. Set a goal, accomplish or fail, but one or the other. In other words, put a time period on this, almost like it's a race and not just a journey for the rest of our lives. Discuss risks, that's obvious. Um, if anyone wants us to send our own um, risk discussion, I'll be happy to email a form that you use that we use at our clinic. Okay, so just to skip time, you, you can, uh, you, you're probably well familiar with the risks of opioid therapy. Okay, so when I'm discussing, when they come in, you put them on your opioids, whatever else, what, that, that's a tough decision. Come in and they're asking, I'm in terrible pain still, or whatever else, or Maybe they have a 5 out of 10 pain. What does that mean to you? Is that kind of moderate pain? Do I give more? Is that, am I good? Based on all your discussions, whether it's injections, whether they need more PT, whether they need medication change, whatever else on function, just ask them, how are you sleeping? Are you exercising? The same thing. Based on your decision-making, I always base my decision-making, my, not always, but for the most part, base my decision-making about my injections based on their level of functionality. Say, is that acceptable to you? Is that normal life for you? Say, yeah, it's okay. Even if they report 8 out of 10 pain, say, keep at it. Keep up the good work. You know, 8 out of 10 pain, but they're dealing with it, they're functional. I ask the functional question, are you walking regularly? Are you able to keep your job? Are you taking care of your kids? Are you washing your dishes? Are you having piles of laundry pile up in your house, you know? Okay, so the only state, this is a prescription monitoring program we have in Washington here. It's called the Secure Access Washington. New Hampshire passed their own secure prescription monitoring program. Who here is, um, has applied or has prescription monitoring program privileges? Anyone in this room here? It's kind of standard of care now. It's not illegal not to write it. It's kind of standard of care more so this past decade. Only Missouri is the only state that doesn't have a prescription monitoring program. Um, and it was just shot down recently, ironically, by a, by a physician who was a, a politician as well. Drug screens. Okay, by the way, every month is kind of, every visit is kind of difficult at times. We do it every visit because we have ancillary staff that does it for us. We're, we're well staffed to handle this. But people say every three months, there's no con exact consensus, at least every year is what the recommendations are from experts. Check for multiple prescribers. So basically you have the sheet that says where they filled the prescription, who wrote it, and how much, and, and the date. So it's really handy. It's been, a, it's been a game changer for sure with opioid use. Drug screens. And so at least yearly, two to three times for moderate risk, and three to four times the severe risk per year, I, I think is a reasonable goal. And when I read that in the CDC report, I would agree. Now what's a moderate and severe? There's a lot of ways to kind of sort them out, you know, that's, it's kind of a gray area. Think of the keys to your car, okay? And think of low risk as someone, you would, you're here in Palm Springs, someone had to go out to Safeway to go buy some groceries. As a low risk patient, here are my keys. You know, go get some milk, and they go run off to get some milk. You know they have a driver's license, and the probably reasonable person, you or you or you, I can send you to get some milk at Safeway and probably be not too stressed out about it, right? That's probably low risk. Think about moderate risk as your teenager who doesn't have a driver's license yet. You've seen them drive around the neighborhood a couple times. They're pretty responsible. They, you know, they, they haven't gotten any real big trouble yet. That's probably moderate risk. Like, 
if a teenager walked up to you, they're a pretty good driver, pretty responsible person, but you're like, uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you ask your mom if he's willing to go with you too to the store? You know, this moderate risk. Severe risk is probably asking an elementary school or a toddler, putting the keys in their hands, saying, hey, go get the milk, you know? You, you know, your gut tells you, so to speak, and that's actually pretty accurate in terms of opioids. There's a lot of tests and screening, actually, to specify this. And again, I mentioned some tests, but they're hard to use. But in regards to your gut, that, look at that person in the eye. Would you lend them your car? <laughs> and you know what, how they look like to you, so to speak, how many drug screens have they failed? That will kind of give you a gist of where you want to be, so to speak, roughly. I'm going to kind of skip this. You, um, 60 milligrams-ish of morphine is when they want to put you, people recommend putting on the time-release medications, or 30 milligrams of oxycodone, roughly speaking, is when they start putting on the fentanyl patches or oxycontin, whatever else. If you're an internist or hospitalist, post-operative, I would encourage you probably, if someone's struggling in pain and you want to start a long-acting medication, they're just pumping away at their breakthrough pain medications, and you're going to refer to pain soon, I would advise probably against fentanyl because as you put it on, you bought that for a week. Uh, they, some nurses are good at valuing, assessing, but it's hard to titrate, I guess. You know? So that's part, part of my last choice is fentanyl is an inpatient. It's a hard, quick titration, whereas your oxycontins and morphine is a little bit more brisk, so to speak. Keep in mind, abuse deterrent does not mean abuse prevention. Um, they had a, a, what city was it in? They had a, just a quick inventory of uh, addicts coming to the Suboxone Clinic, and they asked, are you, still, are you still abusing Oxycontin? And a third of them said they were. This is after. Two, now, from 2010 to 2012, it lowered the use of Oxycontin, but it's kind of stable off. In other words, they're finding ways to um, cook the Oxycontin and still use it. They have the abuse deterrent to make it like a colloid, you know, or jelly in the matrix, and they still have ways, you know, they're always a step ahead. If you really need it, you'll, you'll get it. And so um, there's, keep in mind, there's no safe dose, so to speak. And I just covered that, so I'm just going to skip so I can get to the back pain. I recommend not changing after before five half-lives uh, in terms of the next dose or whatnot. Um, most are about two to four hours-ish, so to speak. Keep in mind, um, fentanyl has a half-life of about 16, 24 hours. Uh, buprenorphine has a half-life of, though that you point out, right, Brian buprenorphine. Um, 36, 72 hours sometimes. Methadone, 8 to 59 hours. So these are hard medicines to titrate quickly. I try to not change morphine on a... Thursday is the last day it worked for me. I try not to change methadone on, th on a Thursday, by the way. You want to see them closely, be aware and available. Keep in mind, heroin is a few minutes. Have any of you ever seen heroin in a urine screen before? Probably not, because 10-minute half-life. If you see heroin in the urine clinic, they might have taken it in the waiting room. You know? You might not even see 6-man monocytic morphine in your clinic, it has a fast half-life. If you see morphine in your urine screen not being written, I won't say it's heroin, but it's heroin. <laughs> you know, if you see it, it's just a spot urine screen, it's morphine. Where do you get morphine? I looked at PMP, there's no morphine. It's heroin. Just a FYI, you know? It's not heroin, but just keep that in the back of your mind. You know, it's, it's, I never see heroin in the urine. Hardly ever. Maybe once in my career I've seen heroin. Okay, so, there's, so this is what, these two sentences are important, so I kind of isolated them. You can look a patient in the eye, and you can say this with confidence, overwhelming confidence. Now, there is now an established body of scientific evidence that this won't help you. It's overwhelming evidence, actually. Two, this is touchy, because people get fired. You know, patients get fired. CDC, state boards, no one ever says fire patients. You hardly ever see any state recommendation say fire a patient. They always say offer a tapering plan. You're kind of liable. Now, 
I do understand those situations in which you sh they pop to your door and they have medication. That may not be your case, but if you have a relationship with them, so to speak, and establish clinical care, be cautious when you say, oh, you, I see your PMP, you have multiple doctors, you see someone else. You're kind of liable. You have to at least offer whether it's addiction training or, um, or um, tapering plans. You, you, we're not quite off the hook anymore when we say we'll see you later. They can have some legal ramifications. When I review charts, I done, I've done a lot of expert assessment of charts and whatever else. The worst charts I've seen are the ones that are just 15 pages for every clinic visit because they just copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. I'm look, have you ever seen those charts when you review charts before? Every single page is the same. And to get a chart like 200 pa pages and it's the same note, every single one. And you look at this, what in the world is the pain? I still don't even know after reading all this, you know, because they copied everything. Have you seen that chart? That's a and you'll get nailed for those kind of charts. You have to have a chart that actually says they had discussion with them. That means so much. One couple of sheets like that, more so than 100 sheet, sheets. In other words, even if you continue saying stuff like, oh, this person's walking their dog now, you know, and by the way, he, he got a job at Safeway. He's, at, he's, at a, he's a clerk there. Stuff like that means so much more to an expert than if you just say, patient has no complaints of pain, no sedation, pariahs, constipation, refuel medication. Those look terrible in expert witnesses in terms of accidental death, overdose, and whatnot. Um, adding things like he just got a puppy and he's grooming him now and stuff like that, it means so much to an expert witness when they're reading your notes. Um, keep in mind that majority of initial acute episodes resolve, but 2 to 3% will go on to chronic pain. I'm going to skip the rest of the slide there. Um, acute pain. We're going to talk about the back pain here in just a minute. Again, I added slides I knew I wasn't going to talk about for those that wanted the whole presentation. Um, I am going to really try my best to stick within the restrictions of the time restrictions today. Um, so return visits, I am going to skip. It's kind of self-explanatory if you want to look at the chart yourself. Most say don't, say don't go more than three months without seeing them. That's really on the edge if you have chronic opioid therapy. Um, I'm gonna skip that one as well. Our hospital has a, a, an agreement with our clinic where they will formulate Narcan or Naloxone. And so um, they could pick it up and we don't, some people have recommended everyone should be on it. Our policy in our clinic is that people over 100 milligrams of morphine daily should have that available in the house to use. And when I remind patients that this half-life is like an hour or so, you know, and so your opioids are going to last longer than that. So families, if you dose, call 911. You may have to redose in two to three minutes. Spray each nose one time every two to three minutes. I had a patient. Um, she had a pump replaced by a, a provider in our office. And they missed the pump, those pain pumps, you know? They put all the morphine inside their abdominal wall. And so she went to the hospital, and, um, and then she went to the um, store just to pick up her medications, you know? And she started passing out, and her friends were like, my, my, my wife's passing out, you know? So get her to the ER. And sure enough, you know, intrathecal medications were all placed in the abdominal cavity, and so we pushed her on the Narcan drip. Tapering. Getting 10%-ish is probably what most people do. If they're on really huge doses, you can go faster. If it's not in their urine, you don't have to taper them, okay? They're not taking it. Just why, FYI, keep that in mind. And they may need psychosocial support. These are great links um, under agency guideline for prescribing opioids. And again, I read them fast. If you want the actual uh, presentation, I'll email it to you. That's kimjo54 at yahoo.com, by the way. Um, CDC guideline for prescribing opioids 2016 and the model policy. Now, the bottom one, the model policy, use of opioids, most states will copy that and use it as their model policy. So that's probably the most common one. It was updated in 2013. They're long, but you don't have to read the whole thing, but you can use them as guidelines for your practice. Five-minute back pain consult. Okay, so 
Um, I did want a chance to cover this. I tell you, if, if we can, as systemically, and I've been like, scratching my head about this too, how do we get this? Remember that, those million patients I was telling you about, you know, those 2 to 3% of the adult population that are on chronic opioid therapy, which is 8, 10 million people? If even 1 out of 10 were sincere, true pain, chronic pain people, how do we get them? How do we, as our Adventist message, change in, bi- change in thought process, change in activity, people who are searching for something better, how do we bring them in? And so I think all of us should be, we're not going to save everyone in regards to fixing their back pain, but there are people that just want something better, and our, our message is so appealing to what they're needing, actually. So risk factors for back pain, age, of course, male, um, family history, lack of exercise, obesity, psychological history, menopause, osteoporosis. Now, caffeine, there's a, there's a Hopkins study. Um, That's where, where I trained at. And... Um, I still tell, I cheat and I tell patients that stop your caffeine for your back pain. It's probably more caffeine with trolls that are causing their back pain. I don't know of any great studies about direct link of back pain and caffeine. There's some poor evidence, but I just tell them anyway. Just start, might as well add that into the patient when I talk to them. Um, now, this is a study that um, says that people who are going to have severe back pain, people who are tobacco users, now there is good evidence about tobacco use, heavy lifting, machine tools. Now, moderate back pain, Specifically, the activities, people that are joggers, specifically across country skiers, they found in the study, um, you know, uh, journal of bone and joint surgery, higher risk of moderate levels of back pain. That's your friend and my friend. What can go wrong? Now, some of the terms, you know, spondylolisthesis, no, spondylosis, generically, if you read, have you ever read an MRI spondylosis? Generically, it means um, spine degeneration, though specifically some people will refer to it as osteoarthritis in the spine. Both are probably correct. So spondylosis. Spondylolysis, you have little fractures in your pars, interarticularis. And spondylolisthesis is when you have that sliding. It's actually one of the last few real indications where Medicare will pay for spinal fusion these days and ages. So everyone gets flexion extension films from the surgeon before they fuse because they need that um, confirmation for most um, fusion surgeries unless there's some caught a canine going on or whatnot, or, or some medical emergency, I should say. Okay, so don't sit on these. Cancer, unexplained weight loss, and immunosuppression. In other words, we'll see in a month, see how it goes, okay? Immunosuppression, long steroids, IV drug use, UTIs, history increased with rest pain, fevers, trauma, bowel, bladder incontinence, I don't think you would anyway, or urinary retention. Physical red flag, saddle anesthesia, sphincter tone loss, major motor weakness, fevers, and vertebral tenderness. That, there's actually good studies, but it has to be done right. You know, anyone can hurt in the back if you push hard enough in the vertebral body, I mean the spinous processes. So assess, when your patient comes in your office, I have back pain, usually labs are not indicated unless you're concerned about tumor and infection. You do not need it for acute pain though. Radiology actually is not recommended unless they're above 50. I would like to add probably unless they're younger too. 18 or younger as well, which radiology might have a role. Um, concern about compression fracture of the elderly with the fall. And, if, and at two months, they're still not sure. Evidence is mixed, except it, unless they have radiculopathy involved in their pain, whether or not x-rays really change their outcome. But after two months, I probably would, as interventions, I probably would get extra screening. Um, advanced imaging, um, by all means, right in the beginning, if there's signs of infection, cauticina, cancer, with cord compression or um, potential candidates for surgery or injections. Now, I put really small on purpose, these screeners. Um, this is the PHQ-9. Has anyone ever heard of the PHQ-9 or PHQ-4s before? 
Get in your chart if you have any patients on pain medicine. Just I know it's extra work and we're adding a lot of things. I have to tell every patient about BMI now in my office. I have no idea why and they have no idea why sometimes, but I have to do it for meaningful use. You know, have you had to add BMI to your chart notes too and whatnot? And so, um, but we, have, we had a PHQ screener and <clears throat> that's a GAD that's there too. The reason why I kind of blurred it out is this. You may not know how to score it or report it or use it. All I can say is that get the habit of looking real quickly and if they have a bunch of those, then send them somewhere or talk to them a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Over to the right, say, huh, a lot of those, over half of those. Look at it a little bit more carefully. It's just a quick bang. You don't even have to add. Just look at it real quickly. It's actually a good way of leading to conversation about depression and anxiety. That's a PH29, by the way. Okay, studies show that opioids over the first few days of acute pain do not return to full activity any faster than people that are on combination NSAIDs and Tylenol. This is a 200 milligram dose ibuprofen, 500 milligrams of Tylenol. No studies show acute pain return to full activity. Studies do show that muscle relaxants are probably better in placebo early on. That's why I told you NSAIDs, muscle relaxants early on. Chronic muscle relaxants, I know many people are on them. I just can't justify it very much. Um, probably equal to NSAIDs. And anyone ever give a dose pack for pain, back pain in the past? You don't have to admit it if you have. I have. But have you ever given a dose pack for back pain? If you practice long enough, you have a lot of pain face, you probably will eventually. But there's no evidence. And they actually discourage against it. Um, Everyone does. It's one of those things like, how to, you know, um, Z-packs for colds, right? It, you just kind of don't say it, but people do it, you know? I don't write Z-packs. I'm not a primary care provider, but I'm just saying. Okay, so well, how do you treat it? Nothing. Remember I told you earlier, acute back pain, 60 to 70% probably will get better over the next six to nine months with doing absolutely nothing. Um, these are evidence-based studies showing good PT, posture, chiropractic, massage, acupuncture, and injections in terms of um, treatment. But again, I tell the patients, you're probably going to get better on your own. You know, I want to enhance your function over the next few months. What can I do to do that? I want to talk about posture real quick. I do spend a lot of time with posture with my patients. <clears throat> so, um, you know, feet shoulder width apart, you know, and chin about side level to like a window, eye level. You're looking out a window, looking at the sun or something. Shoulders back and down. And I tell them, do diaphragmatic breathing where you're breathing with your diaphragm and the abdomen going up, out when you're breathing in, and purse lifts out. You've seen that, right? Right? I tell them to do that a couple minutes a day, a couple times a day, a couple minutes at a time. Don't do it so fast that you're passing out. I tell them to do it for about a month or two. And the reason being is, yes, it reduces anxiety and stress, but I tell them, you can't breathe right unless you're in the correct posture. You can't be like, you know, it's, or it's a lot, at least a lot harder to do so. You know, they're going to straighten themselves out. And after a while, I tell patients, if you get used to breathing correctly, you're going to do most of your activity, hopefully, in life in the correct posture. And it's about doing activities, whether it's shoveling, walking, sitting, taking notes here. People who have good posture because they want to breathe right. And I tell patients, you're going to be sitting slumped over and all of a sudden you're going to realize you're not breathing. You're going to be like. And you said, do that when you're lifting, when you're walking. You want to be in the correct posture um, to improve your back pain. Okay, we have good evidence for moderate efficacy about CBT, exercise, spine manipulation, interdisciplinary rehab. That means rehab with um, cognitive um, focus too. And firm is less effective as medium firm. I always tell patients to get a nice firm mattress and get a little pillow top on top. What position do I sleep in, people will ask me. Honestly, it's whatever feels best, but typically people say for sciatica, you know, you've heard pillows beneath your knees or if you're a side sleeper between your knees and having the top knee kind of crossed over like that. Cold is interesting. Um, studies aren't very good about cold therapy. The one incidence when I do tell patients to use cold is initially right when they have that trauma. You know, like that sprained ankle, except you sprained your back. 
but studies are pretty poor. They're actually, the only real the put on your back modality that's pretty good evidence is heat. And so if there's no evidence of trauma, I'll tell them to put on the heat first, not sleep over at night, obviously. But if there is evidence of trauma, that first day I do add, ask them to apply the cold. After that first day or two, you usually just tell the patient whatever feels better, 15 minutes at a time every hour if you need to. But the studies don't bear it out in regards to cold showing any better improvement long term. Okay, so um, Chow, Chow et al. did an interesting study about modalities of care, especially the ones that you plug in and apply. And this is actually surprising, his results. <clears throat> Basically, ultrasound and a lot of the other things that are used kind of applied to us, so to speak, um, evidence is lacking of any benefit. And this is the surprising part about the study, is that Tenzin, actually, there was good evidence of lack of benefit. <laughs> You know, it surprised me, actually, because I put on a tenzina myself, and I have back pain. It feels great, actually, I'll be honest with you, you know. But there's actually good evidence of lack of benefits, and I know many. Now, listen. I, I, let's be realistic here. I, I, just epi, I do epidural steroid injections. I've done thousands in my career. And I know the statistics about epidural steroid injections for spinal stenosis. I even go in and tell the patient, listen, studies are terrible that this is going to help you at all. You, you realize that, right? So what we're going to do is this, because you've tried everything. I really, really don't want to start you on painkillers, and you don't want to either. Or they've expressed that to me. Said, this, we're just going to open up hopefully a six-month window. Uh, hopefully at best, but if a couple months. But you better really work your tail off during that time period, because you're going to be the same person with steroids in your body now. You know? And if that first one doesn't work, I'll tell them, I really don't think the second one's going to be much different. second one doesn't work, statistics say 80 to 9% with zero relief from the second will get zero relief from the third. And so I tell the patients that, and I say, listen, I'm going to contract with you if we do this. Um, what our goals are about this, because I know in the back of mind, spinal stenosis is a terrible indication for epidural steroid, for most cases, for a, a, and canal stenosis. Um, so anyway, the studies show that moderate evidence of heat wraps, short-term um, reduction of acute and a subacute back pain, it is better with exercise, and there's insufficient evidence about cold. Um, this is that study I was telling you about, about the exercise and tolerance with non-athletes. Exercise. Now, the study studies have kind of reverse itself. Early on, anyone ever heard of, a physiatrist heard of McKenzie exercises or whatnot? Um, previously, studies had borne out that for acute pain, McKenzie exercise may be helpful. Um, at this point, we don't know of any specific exercise for acute back pain other than just walking and getting back to normal function. I mean, there's actually some really good studies about getting back to normal function um, in terms of... Um, getting over that acute phase. But McKenzie Williams is that flexion type exercise that people do, stretching, no better than just getting back normal function. I don't talk a lot about exercises with the patient in terms of getting those sheets out anymore then. Um, I tell them to do it with their physiatrist and master it, but not just getting a sheet and going home then. Even though there's some that could be beneficial, I talk about, are you doing your dishes? What posture are you doing? How high are your dishes on, in your cabinets at your home? You know, are you doing your laundry? Are you walking your dog? And th are you taking out your garbage and whatever else? And that helps me get a good sense of where we're at in terms of treatment. Um, there's poor evidence of any exercise, which one is better. I think that studies will bear out there probably are. We're just kind of, it's funny to say, it, infancy about which are best. So this is why I tell the patient, this is actually my most important slide that I have for you today, and it has no words. I tell patients, I say, listen, I need to get you walking rigorously, building up a heartbeat 20, 30 minutes a day, three to five times a week. We've all heard numbers similar to that, right? And I say, listen, if you can't walk, you need to, Get on an elliptical or a bike, 20, 30 minutes, three to five times a week, because something's better than nothing. If you can't even get on an elliptical on a bike, 
you need to get into a pool, you know? Just like Ellen White, that passage I mentioned earlier, you need to get into a pool against gravity and just start doing this deal for 20, if you can, you know? Without, without gravity, not against gravity. If you can't do that, just sit on a ball and try to balance. You know, do, you know, sit up straight and erect and try to keep a good posture, do breathing exercises. What I'm trying to say is get them at the level they're at and get them up to the point which hopefully they can start ambulating. Find their functional level and get them moving. Everyone has something. Some people say, I have no legs, Dr. Kim. Or get an exercise table and just start doing your arms or something. You know what I'm saying? Find their luck functional level and move, on, move forward from there. Now, this next slide is somewhat important too. Um, if I had to rank the slide importance, if the past one was one, this one would be number two. What I usually do is honestly, you hear people doing strengthening exercise and flexibility, whatever else. Should I do yoga, Dr. Kim? Should I do stretching? I saw these stretches on the... I basically will tell them, if you can't even walk 20 or 30 minutes a day on flat surfaces, then you've got enough on your plate in regards to strengthening and flexibility. If, if they can do that easily, easily, without discomfort, and, and severe pain in doing it, or recovery pain, taking more than a day afterwards, then do your steps for strengthening, or resistance, or incline, or something like that. But if you can't even do it on a flat surface with good shoes on grass, then your strengthening may not do as well, and you're going to be more inclined to use the wrong posture to do those things to compensate, you know? And then you're going to probably hurt yourself. And so if you can, move up to strengthening. Incline, steps, resistance, stuff like that. And if you can do strengthening well, then you can move, and, or even mild weights on your hands and wrists. If you can do strengthening well, then you can probably move over to flexibility. And I always tell people to do flexibility exercises with a professional or someone who's trained. I, I never give them handouts to start doing this deal and that deal, unless they're really just in reasonably good shape and whatnot. But the... Um, there can be some bad things that happen with overflexibility, by the way. Um, she'd probably, most cases, do a supervise in terms of flexibility training, even though there are some exceptions. I have a couple minutes. I want to certainly leave enough time for the next lecture. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip this about, um, there's mixed reports about manipulation. I, my, my thought about chiropractic has shifted probably completely last decade in regards to chiropractic. A decade ago, I, I didn't recommend it to anyone. And still some high-velocity cervical manipulation I still kind of squeamish about. But evidence does bear out that um, PT, some studies, British Journal of Medicine, that is a bit better with physical, I mean, than physical therapy for chronic pain, though there's a Swedish study that will conflict with that. And so at this point, at least enough evidence that I'll tell people, this is my pat response, I'll say, well, it's probably as good as a pill, you know? So if it's better than taking a pill, then, and you're feeling better, not hurt too harm, painful afterwards, by all means. And that's kind of my stance now. It's not a large stance, but I mean a strong stance, but it is what I'd offer the patients as advice. Um, let's skip this for the time. I mean, this is a, talking about um, some meta-analysis. Now, this is the last couple of slides here, and we'll probably just end it here. I told you in the beginning that invariably after every talk, someone walks up to me, and, and if you do, bless your heart, I'd be happy to talk with you. I always get to talk like, have you rubbed this on the body? Have you swallowed this? Or have you find this black stuff, you know? And I just told you in the beginning, no, I don't. I have the same Google search engines as you do. And so um, just keep in mind a couple of things. Um, they have then studied comparative studies to Vioxx, which is now off the market. Willow bark and Devil's Claw, similar responses. Keep in mind the Devil's Claw, I think, is pretty close to silicic acid. It's basically aspirin in regards to chemical structure. Um, the Willow's bark, actually, Willow's bark actually lost in a head-to-head -head with diclofenac. Um, Turmeric, that's the one herb that has got a lot of re um, attention recently and really good studies. Um, 
curcumin is kind of like a byproduct of turmeric, you know, one of the, so they're still trying to figure out what's best, the turmeric or curcumin itself. Mostly if you've been in medicine long enough, a patient's gonna ask you if you should take this stuff. Um, the biggest issue about curcumin turmeric, it's pretty safe. In fact, studies show that uh, for osteophytes, it's better than placebo. And some patients taking 8,000 milligrams a day, which is about you know, how 32 times the amount that the other studies show no toxicity, is bioavailability. Lots of people aren't just getting enough in their system because and people are recommending they're making gels and emulsifications for the turmeric to be able to absorb it into your body. Um, they recommend black pepper to take with turmeric for to retard the um, the metabolism of the turmeric in the system, you know, or piperin, which is a, a again another constituent of black pepper. And so keep that in mind. We're not sure how to put it in the system where it stays and you get available and absorbed, but there's some promising information about turmeric. Um, I have some conversations about this with colleagues and I uh, haven't started prescribing it. I don't exactly know the dose or what kind of colloid or liposomal emulsification to write it in, quite honestly, but there's some interesting things, promising things about turmeric. But again, I'm not looking for the quick rub on Even though they're, they're nice, I'm like, lifestyle changes, thought changes, all these things along the way are great. But if I can get to um, things that are going to be long-term benefit, that's great. It's so my last thought, 30 seconds. I don't want to take any more time for the next lecture. Um, have any, anyone ever used capsaicin? Please keep in mind, if they use it once and don't use it, use it once, don't use it. All they're doing is rubbing it on, hurting themselves, rubbing it on, hurting themselves. You know, you have to keep on using it to get any relief three to four times a day to the affected area. You're trying to um, desensitize is not the right word because the, the, uh, the, the TRPV channels are still working. But um, the thought is they kind of exhaust their pain modulators. And so it basically, if you just keep rubbing it on, you're going to hurt yourself every time. And neuropathic pain is what it's been cleared for. They have this 8% patch now that you can take every three months. You can use four of them at a time. But mechanical, no septic pain, not as great. As, um, again, that's kimjo54 at yahoo.com if you have any questions or if you want the presentation itself. So much to say, but I want to keep focus. I will not take more time than um, for the other speakers that, are, that have some great lectures following. Thank you very much for your time and attention. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.